Welcome to episode 149, a candid conversation about documentation, misery or mastery, featuring Beth Rontel, licensed independent clinical social worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am delighted today to be joined by my colleague, Beth Rontel. She is a licensed and independent clinical social worker out of the state of Massachusetts, and clinical documentation is her jam. She is one of those weird folks like me, and I am <laughs> delighted to have her here to uh, share some of her immense experience uh, with you to hopefully ease some of your struggles with documentation. Beth, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I am really pleased to be here. So why don't you tell our listeners a bit about you and how and why you would possibly specialize in the primary pain point for clinicians all around the country? Yeah, that's a, it is a surprise. I was surprised <laughs> that I became known as the documentation wizard, because if you had told me that that was where I was headed when I first started my clinical career, I would have told you to get your head examined. <laughs> um, I didn't think that clinical documentation had anything to do with providing good care. Um, but having worked at a clinic for almost 16 years and supervised 11 of those years, supervised, my goodness, over 50 therapists from interns to seasoned clinicians and having to re review their documentation and uh, give it back to them corrected and being involved in the development of the first practice management system, um, I, I learned that, well, first of all, for me, if documentation had to be done, and it does, then it had to be done so that it was a contribution to clinical practice mm. and not an afterthought. And of course, the time spent is an annoyance for most people, and sometimes even for me, I will admit. But I always learn something when I reflect on what I did in the session. And that's the beauty of being able to do good documentation. So for you, it was appreciating that it didn't have to be this really awful, uncomfortable thing that you had to do at the end of the day. It wasn't just box checking, but that it could become an integrated part of being a decent clinician. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if we had to do it, I wanted it to be meaningful. Absolutely. So for the purposes of today, and you and I, before we started recording, both joked how many hours you and I can talk about documentation, which sounds yeah. nuts, because you would really think there's not that much to say, but there really is just an endless amount to say. For the purpose of today, we're going to be talking about what I'll call pain points and also some of the myths or red flags about clinical documentation, um, because my goodness, there are so many myths, um, ones that I know as I say them, you're going to nod. For example, if I'm in private practice and I take cash pay, it doesn't mean, or I, it means I don't have to take any progress notes, for example. Or if I uh, and am out of network and an insurance company asks for my notes because um, the client submitted a super bill for reimbursement, I don't have to convey any notes because I don't actually quote unquote accept insurance. These are some of the myths, um, and we'll talk about some of them. And for our listeners, we address some of these other myths too in other episodes. So I encourage you, 
We've had um, all different kinds of documentation, excuse me, documentation, HIPAA and insurance experts come on and talk about different billing codes, billing for couple therapy, for example, how to become a, a managed care provider, things like that. So there are also those episodes. But for the purpose of today, we're going to be really honing in on just a candid conversation about documentation, avoiding audits and red flags, what happens in a, in a recruitment, things like that. And Beth is nodding. <laughs> yeah, so, let's go. <laughs> so what are some of the biggest obstacles, Beth, um, that you see that therapists have when it comes to their clinical documentation? What I hear most often is, I don't know exactly what to write, I don't know how much or how little, and I am afraid of um, revealing too much information and not having it be confidential. Let's take a minute and talk about that confidentiality piece. That was one that I really struggled with when I was at my first, as I call it, baby therapist job where I had a utilization review person come to me and want more details about a client's traumatic experience so that they could relay that to the third party payer. How do you personally wrestle with and contend with the reality that charts are our property as clinicians or the property of the facility where we work? And they also contain potentially privileged information that in any world we would almost always want quote unquote confidential. Well, it is a great question. It's not a simple answer. Yeah. Um, and some of it depend some of it is situation dependent. So first of all, I would say that when you write the content of a session, if you're writing more than a couple of sentences or even two or three sentences, or you're quoting a client with more than one sentence, you're writing too much. Mm -hmm. You're writing a process recording, kind of a, a, a sentence by sentence detail of what the client said and what the therapist said. And that's something that you do in graduate school to get clear about what's happening yeah. in the session. In a progress note or a session note, as I call them, you want to stay away from the details of the story because those aren't anybody's business. Mm -hmm. So you would give, here's the way I teach it. Mm -hmm. The client comes in and says something about how their week has gone or what they want to work on and something like, it was a really bad week. And you might write that in your progress note that this is what the client presented with. Quote, it was a really bad week. And then your intervention is something like uh, engaged client in reflecting on and processing the quote unquote bad week. Right. And then you would also, you know, maybe the client was crying during session and also agitated. So you would indicate in your notes that the client was tearful and agitated. And in your assessment, you might kind of tie together what the client said with how the client appeared and what you did as an right. intervention. So your assessment might be something like a uh, client was tearful or it appears client was tearful due to breaking up with her long-term girlfriend. I appreciate you giving that example, and it's one that I've been um, challenged with too. So I'm, I'm sure all of us work with 
populations that can sometimes contain really uh, privileged information. And yes. the example that I've given, I work quite a bit with the queer community. And what may have happened in session is somebody talking about um, their sexual interest in certain persons or people. And what I'm writing is explored clients' um, romantic feelings toward others, which is very different than writing clients is experiencing same-sex attraction to XYZ person. And that those things are up to the uh, discernment and the judgment of the clinician as to how much they're going to include. But I, I'm glad that you addressed that point because I think sometimes um, when clinicians get into what I call the play-by-play, -play, as you mentioned, kind of the therapist said, client said, it can inadvertently become what I kind of jokingly say is a smutty novel and we don't want our progress <laughs> notes to read that way. Um, I completely agree. So, so thank you for bringing up that point. Um, you alluded to it earlier and I want to revisit it. You said for you documentation, you believe can really kind of become this tool to actually make you a better clinician. I've heard you previously call that self-supervision. Can you speak to that and what that idea is and, and why you think it's important for clinicians to remember that concept? It's important because we are thinking about what just happened in the session and what we did and what why what happened, happened. And could we have had a different intervention? And where might we take the session the, the next time we meet? And what kinds of feelings are does the therapist have? Not that that belongs in the note, but it's useful to notice what are the feelings mm. that I have about this client. And when you're writing an assessment, if you notice that you want to write an assessment that's something like client was non-compliant and resistant to interventions, you might want to start noticing that you have that, that you're feeling negative judgments mm -hmm. and um, and starting to blame the client for not getting better. And if that starts happening, then it's a really good idea to take that concern or that thought and get some consultation yourself. And I don't know any therapist who has not thought that. So I want to normalize it for everyone yeah. um, and say that it's perfectly, it just happens all the time. Yeah, it's part you of know? the process. It's part of the process and it's what keeps us growing. I appreciate that idea and the um, pursuit of continual growth that we never max out. And our listeners know that I'm a feedback-informed treatment nerd, and that's part of feedback-informed treatment is this idea that we're always ideally working at the edge of our ability levels in order to continue expanding our ability. And that when we look yes. at the most successful um, athletes or musicians, they're practicing, quote-unquote, deliberate practice, which means they figure out where they're not great and that's where they invest the time instead of staying in the comfort zone where it's like, I nailed this part. Um, but that keeps them from continuing to improve. Yes. Growth happens on the edge of discomfort. Absolutely. So thank you yeah. for bringing up that piece. And I think I'm sure you and I have both seen it. I think documentation typically is such a point of discomfort. And as you said, for you as well, for me as well, <laughs> we go through moments of different relationships to our documentation. Sure. Um, so for the purposes of today's conversation, 
we're going to have this kind of law and ethics grounding invariably as any conversation about clinical documentation. What do you use as a general standard, knowing that as we record this, we have listeners not only in the United States, but all over the world. So for the purpose of our United States listeners, what do you see as like the standard where you're pulling um, the, the general rules and guidelines from? I pull the general rules and guidelines for the administrative details from Medicare, because if you can pass a Medicare audit, you can pass any commercial audit. Medicaid, which are the state-by-state standards um, or the state-by-state insurance companies, may have some additional standards, but they primarily follow Medicare standards. And the additional standards they have are often about children. If you're working with children or working with teens, you need to consult with the families or the guardian ad litem or the foster family. You need to include their supports so that you can have really understand and work well with the child. And that all needs to be documented. Thank you for making that point about state-specific laws. Um, And that is an important point for our listeners that while you're pulling from Medicare to keep in mind that States, for example, have different rules about record retention past the age of majority for minors. Um, so to make sure as you're listening to this, that you know what your state's lo- state laws are about custody, things like that, because particularly for minors, um, whether we need to call and report something, what we're documenting in a report, all of that can be very state, state specific and change with just a couple of miles between <laughs> you and the client, depending where they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when we're talking about documentation and you're using Medicare as a guide, does that mean that what you're talking about only applies to clinicians who accept third-party payments? So they work with a grant or Medicare or Medicaid or Medi-Cal or Aetna or whoever else that's paying them? In other words, do therapists who don't take insurance need to follow these standards? Exactly. Absolutely. Here's why. And it's a bit of a long explanation. When therapists were able to accept insurance payments, therapists came under the rule of having to prove medical necessity. So I guess in some ways we should be very careful what we ask for. We wanted insurance companies to accept us. To legitimize. To legitimize us and also to make mental health care more accessible Mm -hmm. to people. And it did do that at least at least until the pandemic and um so once we had to justify medical necessity our notes had to follow a certain consistent rubric of information so we have to have the start and the stop time we have to have a cpt code we have to have not just the name of the diagnosis but the number of the diagnosis And that's actually written out, spelled out in Medicare rules. Um, We need to make sure that we know and track medication. Not that we're med providers, but we're the first line of defense, Mm -hmm. so to speak. We see the patient or the client every week or every other week where the med prescriber might not see the client, if lucky, every three months. Those are really important points. And I think... Part of the confusion, and I imagine for our, our listeners, it's it's probably I'm assuming it's interesting for you when you have 
me talking with another documentation expert because we have similar training and a different way of explaining things. Um, how I see it is if you get a hundred clinicians in a room and they're just randomly chosen in your state, what's going to bubble up to the surface is the standard is going to be the insurance requirements. It's going to be Medicare um, as the gold standard because now we live in an environment where there are more services covered by managed care and more clinicians who are part of the managed care system as a third party payer. And then that becomes the majority rule effectively. And so even for those of you who are cash paying to remember that you're still being held to the standard by your state board, for example, based on what those people in that imaginary room of 100 people would do next to you. And so even if you don't accept insurance, the person to your right does and the person to your left accepts Medicare, what are they documenting? And then are they setting a standard by which yes. our documentation is going to be um, compared? Um, so I appreciate that perspective and you just outlining that. So again, for our listeners, I know you don't want to hear it. I know that we want to believe that if we're in cash pay private practice, we don't need to keep notes. We don't need to assign a diagnosis. How long we're in session doesn't really matter. It does. So Beth, why does it matter? What can happen if we don't do those things? And please add to add to this thought because there's a lot here to talk about. Well, one of the things that can happen is that someone can file a complaint against you to your board. And as much as we grow to really care about our clients and think that our clients would never, ever, ever do that, they do. And we can't always predict who would and who wouldn't. And I you know, I I hate to say it because none of us like to believe that, but it happens. And I've heard too many stories of it happening. And once there's a complaint to the board, even though the complaint is not about your notes, your notes quickly get demanded by the board to see if there's any documentation about what the client is complaining about. And then even if the complaint is dismissed and found in your favor, your notes may come into question and you may be sanctioned about your notes. And this is how a, quite a few people come to take my training. Yeah, little, little known fact that little a board complaint can be filed for one thing and end up about inadequacies in your yeah. consents or in your progress notes or treatment plan or anything else. And and this is the unfortunate part of the work is this element of fear that we're afraid of being audited. We're afraid of losing our life licenses and that it shouldn't um, take us away from our intent of being quality providers. And what you're saying is, no, actually, this is all something that should motivate us and propel us into continue being quality providers who grow in our skills, not as something that scares us so much that we stop doing this work. Uh, and I've met those clinicians that say, I don't want to do this anymore. It's too scary. And I don't know what to write. And it's so easy to get really scared and overwhelmed. It is. And that's why it's so important to get good training, which doesn't exist in graduate school programs. Yeah. And maybe if you're lucky, exists at your first job. Because yeah. it sure doesn't. It almost never happens as an intern. Um it did happen at the clinic where I worked, fortunately, because we just got on top of it and provided really good training. And it's how I learned. I want to highlight something you said there, which is that so many um, post-bachelor's programs really don't cover clinical documentation. 
because I think what you said is really important for folks who are struggling with it. It's because you can't be good at a skill that you've never really learned. And, and looking back at my master's degree, we, I don't even know it was ever even discussed. <laughs> like we talked about assessment. Um, we talked about consents, but I don't know if we ever really talked about documentation and what should be in a progress note. And then it, it was only in my first supervis- supervisory experience that that was even discussed. And I happened to also have a supervisor who did a lot of court mediation. And so his mm. perspective about documentation was generally document as little as possible because he was trying to stay on the edge of custody battles. And so I understood why he was saying that, but it was also a perspective that is only one part of the equation of all of the purposes of clinical documentation. It is not only to try to stay out of custody agreements or to appear neutral. It's also to have an accurate representation of what occurred in the session for many reasons. Um, but so for those of the of our listeners that are sitting here going, I don't even, you know, I don't know how to be good at this and other people get it and I don't. And it's like, well, it's because the system was kind of stacked against you. <laughs> well, and that example you just gave indicates that some documentation is truly situation dependent, like around the custody stuff. Um, You know, if you've got a client who's coming to you because they're involved in a lawsuit, let's say, around a car accident, they were injured, it rekindled their PTSD, their physical injuries are bad, which contributes to anxiety and depression, and they're seeing you for therapy, and the whole thing kind of just cascaded, a cascade of depression and anxiety happened after this car accident. And you know that this is gonna go to court, this is gonna be litigated. So you wanna document with that in mind. You want to make sure that you say certain things are related to the car accident in your documentation, things that are truly related to the car accident, not making it up, but there will be plenty of things that are related to the car accident. So you can justify that the client needed therapy based on the car accident. To build upon what you just said and inquire, to justify Tell me more about justification and tell me how the use of behavioral language fits into that, what that even means. Because, you know, I remember very early on learning the quote unquote smart acronym. (laughs) So is it specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time bound? And now after decades of doing this, I can rattle that off. But it's like, what does behavioral even mean? And what does that mean in terms of justification in our progress notes? So... First of all, you don't have to be a cognitive behavioral therapist to document in behavioral language. All you have to do is ask the client, what do you want to see change? And here's here's an example of a question that I ask. So you tell me you're depressed. What does the depression make you do or not do? And the client kind of looks at you and goes, oh, I never thought of it that way. The implication is that you're not, the client is not the problem. The depression is the problem. And the depression is having an effect on the client. And what is the effect it is having on the client? Um, Well, I have a really hard time sleeping. Well, what does that mean? And 
you start to ask for more details. Do you have a hard time falling asleep or staying asleep? Do you have nightmares? Uh, do you wake up often? Do you have trouble falling back asleep? What, oh, yeah, yeah, that. So you're starting the process of having the client self-observe. And a lot of our clients come mm -hmm. to us not being able to self-observe. So asking that question is already a therapeutic intervention. Mm -hmm. um, another question I like to ask if they have a problem with the first one is, if your life were a movie and other people were seeing you in that movie, what would they see you do or not do that would show you were depressed? And that externalizes the problem even further and has the client look at themselves as if they are in someone else's shoes. And the client might go, well, they wouldn't see anything. Well, why not? Because I don't share that kind mm. of thing with anybody. And then you might start thinking that the client doesn't have friends or socially isolated, doesn't trust. Okay, maybe this is a trauma case. What you've done is started the client externalizing the problem so that the so they can see it better and already not be as stuck or mired in it. And then if the client says, I have a real hard time falling asleep and I wake up a lot in the middle of the night, okay, then what do you want to change? Well, I don't want to have a hard time falling asleep and I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night. So now you've got a goal. We'll not have a difficult time falling asleep and we'll not wake up in the middle of the night. That is a perfectly legitimate goal. Thank you for breaking that down in, in such a clear way. And I appreciate how you tied together the idea of the behavioral terms in your documentation, but how eliciting that with a client can also serve to help involve them in treatment. And to piggyback on that, I know in my earlier days in the field that treatment planning so often was like this thing that we did and then we forgot about it. Um, and I was working at the residential level of care. So it was like, oh, well, as long as you're revisiting that treatment plan every few months, it's fine. And when you're thinking about that conceptually, it's totally inadequate. You know, if you imagine going to see a doctor, let's say you were seeing a doctor weekly and they were only changing your treatment plan every three months or whatever it is, it, it doesn't even make sense. And part of that, I think, is that we don't understand why we're treatment planning. And for me, that was part of the process in um, in making sense of these different requirements. It's like, why are we even doing this? And the research shows that when we have an explicit treatment plan that's in language that the client can understand, that they are more likely to be part of the treatment plan and they're more committed to it and therefore more likely to achieve goals associated with it. So it is not just this exercise in futility because Blue Shield said you needed to. It's because it actually is in the best interest of the client in terms of getting better. And all the more reason why I like what you just said in tying together these concepts, that it's it's not just that our brains need to translate it into behavioral terms just for our documentation. It's that translating it into behavioral terms, like you said about watching a movie, what would they observe? Well, they would observe that I haven't been eating breakfast because I really don't, I, I don't have an appetite. They don't know that, but in the movie, I just don't eat breakfast anymore. And so there you have something very concrete and measurable. And I think that's helpful for clinicians to understand those ideas. And it's also helpful for the client. 
it's really helpful because change is measured in change in behavior. Or another way to say that is progress is measured as a change in behavior. And it's not just the insurance company that wants to see change. I mean, truly who wants to see change the is the client. And of course the therapist, yes. because that's what we're in this we profession love gold for. Stars. We do. <laughs> and you know, even little changes feel like gold stars. Yeah. So it actually makes clinical sense to use behavioral language. And the reason I gave that definition, not the definition, um, the reason I gave those two questions is because it helps to get at behavior. Even cognitive distortions are behaviors. Patterns of thinking are behaviors. So when you're tasking a clinician to begin thinking about their notes and their treatment plans in behavioral terms, you had said earlier that the content of the session should really just be a couple of sentences. How do clinicians know how much to include? How long should a progress note take for the average, quote unquote, 50 minute session? You know, that wonderful arbitrary 50 minute session that we do right. weekly. Yeah. <laughs> um, a session note takes about 10 minutes, a little more, a little less, depending on how complicated the session seemed to be and how much you need to think about it clinically. Sometimes sessions are just really, just really clear and straightforward. And sometimes it's really about identifying feelings and strategizing solutions. And there it is, right? And then you kind of have the homework that the client will do X, Y, and Z because you just strategize solutions. Um, those are really fast progress notes to write. But when you have a client who comes in with a more complicated presentation, they can take 10 minutes, they might take 12 minutes. So, you know, you gotta plan it into your time, into your day. For clinicians who are listening and they spend either one minute or alternatively, they spend about as many minutes writing the note as they do in the actual session. What do you say to those folks? Because they are out there. I was one of them. Uh, if my if if my session was forty eight minutes, my note took me forty eight minutes. <laughs> I remember doing that myself yeah. when I was fresh out of school. Yep. yep, and I was so proud of it. I know. Speaking of those gold stars, look at how detailed yes. my note is. I just told you exactly what happened, what the client was wearing, how they were sitting, what the weather was outside. <laughs> If it takes you 20 minutes to write a note, it's taking too long. And there are a lot of people who spend 20 to 30 minutes per note. Um, you're writing a story, and the story doesn't belong in the note. The details don't belong in the note. There are some exceptions, which I will be glad to talk about in a minute. Um, then there are the people who spend two minutes writing a note and it's all check boxes or drop down menus. And all those do are hit the administrative pieces of information that are needed in the session. And Medicare really dislikes them. As do insurance companies. Yeah, as, because they don't say anything. No, um, and I'm, I'm going to it's going to sound like I'm going back to an earlier part of the conversation. Um, just listing the symptoms that a person has really doesn't tell you what's going on with the person. Listing the behaviors is another way of saying discussing 
the functional limitations. What are the functional limitations? A simple example is poor sleep. Well, if you say sleep disturbance as a symptom, you don't know what sleep disturbance you're treating and you don't know how severe or significant it is. Does the person have trouble falling asleep five nights a week, seven nights a week, or three times a month? And if you don't know those approximate numbers, because it can be difficult to get that information from a client, then you can't say how much you want it to improve or what you're shooting for. Now, there are other times when in a note, you do need to be specific, and that's when there is risk or something unusual happens in a session. So if there's risk to, let's say a client comes in and is suicidal, you want to tell that you assessed what your assessment is, why your assessment is the way it is, what the client said to give you that impression, what you said to elicit the information, because this is where you don't want to leave a stone unturned. Because no one ever wants this to happen, but if a client attempts suicide or completes suicide, the therapist is going to be contacted. Another example is if a client gives you a gift, you know, when we when we meet in our offices and the holidays come around and a client gives you a gift, do you accept it? And in some cultures, if you don't accept a gift, it's it's really a will cause a therapeutic breach. Even if you have in your policy that you don't accept gifts. I, I'm smiling as you say this. It was like literally like my fifth session as a new therapist when a client not only brought me a gift, but a gift that was extremely meaningful for that person. And mm. also of arguably a high dollar amount. <laughs> and it was like walking into this like ethical minefield. Um, and then the influence of the cultural factors and the meaning of the gift and all of that. And it was, um, but yes, I remember sitting at the computer after that session, needing to explain not only that I was offered this gift, and then why and how I refused it. And my, as I call it now, my clinical fancy hat about the significance of that and why it was important to document it. But so I'm glad you bring up these um, outlier sessions that yes, in a perfect mm -hmm. world, our notes are going to take five or 10 minutes, and we don't have to think deeply about them. And then there are going to be those times where you go, uh oh, and you're looking at the clock and you go, okay, this session is no longer going to end in the seven minutes that I've allotted for it. Now we've gone into a crisis session, who am I going to contact? What am I going to do? And your note just suddenly also got much longer as soon as things get complicated. That's right. And it's really hard to factor in that time when it you've is. got another client sitting there, you know, either in the waiting room or in your in either in your virtual or your real waiting room. Indeed. And, and we've all been there. Um, we've all been it, there. It's part of part of the deal. So we've been talking about the importance of consistency and documentation and what we haven't explicitly said, but that Really, it doesn't matter what pay source you accept. Your documentation needs to have this baseline in information. I know separately you talk about the administrative stuff and you just alluded to it about the checkbox type notes. 
what in your mind constitutes like administrative part of a note? And then what is actually the content? The administrative pieces are, of course, the name, the date of birth, um, the diagnosis with the code and the name, the CPT code, and a modifier if we need one. Um, I'm just trying to think of all of those pieces. Um, the administrative content, the medications, um, how the client appeared. I mean, that is clinical content, but a lot of notes have check boxes or drop down menus for those. Yeah, for mental status exam. Yeah, yeah, which is a good thing because it makes it quicker. The clinical content is harder to do because the clinical content means you have to discern what's worthy of writing down. Mm -hmm. So clinical content is what the client says. And I always use a quote because insurance companies like to hear directly from the client what the client wants to work on that day. I second that. <laughs> um, also using a quote helps to reduce any story you might tell. So clinical content is what the client comes in wanting to talk about, what the interventions are that the therapist used, and what your assessment is, what progress is. There's a lot of ways to conceptualize assessment. Assessment is progress. Assessment is if you did a 90837, um, which is the longer session, why did you do it? Mm -hmm. Why was it clinically necessary to do that 90837 session? Assessment is um, how the client appears. I actually have a whole checklist written down about what assessment mm -hmm. is because I don't remember it all. And it's all on my note because I like to be cued for everything I need, <laughs> I need to include. Assessment is also prognosis. I, I want to comment on what you just said, though, because I think it's helpful, even for folks like you, who train other people how to do this, we still need reminders about what to include and when to include it, where to include it, and that that's part of the learning curve. Um, and it's something that I don't think we ever really achieve. And goodness knows that mental health clinicians have been in already in high demand and extraordinary stress. And then you throw on the last yeah. few years into it. And now, now, particularly with the situation in Ukraine and Russia, and there's just a huge amount of grief, our brains are absorbing an unbelievable amount of information. And you're not supposed to remember how to do this perfectly all the time. <laughs> None of us can. Um, and to remember that kind of human element. I am so glad that you brought all of that into this conversation. Because therapists are just as affected by what's happening in the world as our clients are. And we need help and we need prompts. So whatever system a, a therapist uses, I want it to include all the prompts that it needs. This, the systems I don't like is when you're given a box to fill in and the box says clinical content. <laughs> and I'm like, what? What does that mean? The, what does that mean? And then you have to make up what it means. And so I don't want to make up what it means. So I have, I have cued myself on my own notes to say exactly what it means, what the client says, how the client appears, what the interventions are, um, uh, is there what the, what the risk is, 
what the assessment is about all of that, what the prognosis is, what the homework is, what the progress is, and why the session is medically necessary. I'm glad we took this little John over here because I think, so you and I are not talking about note formats right now. We're not talking about DAP or GURP or or burp or any other note format that you may or may not have been trained in. The other thing that I want to point out for listeners too, particularly if you're in private practice and you have a whole lot of flexibility because you're your own boss, um, you can most of the time customize your electronic record system to have a note format that actually works for you. And I have yet to work with a particular payer that said it has to be in this format. There are some exceptions to that with the ASAM criteria and substance use treatment and substance use facility. But like I invented my own acronym because it's what works for my brain. And it's none of the ones that are mainstream. <laughs> like it's the one that works for mine. And mine is G Serap. You're welcome to steal it. Um, it's goals, symptoms, interventions, response, assessment, and plan. That's what works for my <laughs> brain. G Serap is what works in my brain. And I just created it one day. So you have Brilliant. the right to create these things. You don't have to do DAP. You don't have to do burp. Um, it's it what it's what works for you. And I appreciate Beth saying, yeah, make a prompt. Remind yourself what you need to put there or change the sections or copy and paste it if you are only given that box that says clinical content and you work in an environment where you're in managed care or an organization where there's a certain way you have to write, can you ask for a modification and say, well, can you know, it helps me if I actually write in DAP. I know substance use counselors are really good at writing in DAP. So if that's the case, that data assessment plan works for you and you're just given a clinical content box, can you copy and paste data assessment plan into that box so that it mm-hmm. works for you? Um, exactly. It's a matter of figuring out a system that works for the way that your brain works. And GSRAP works for me, but it doesn't work for other people. So create your own acronym. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you have a series of interventions that you draw on on a regular yes. basis, have checkboxes with the interventions that you use. Perfectly reasonable. Just you can't use the same ones with the same client every single week. Thank you for bringing up that point. I mean, EMDR being an example where there are really manualized things that you do in a session. However, the client's response to them is going to be different. The particular topic is going to be different. And the protocol that you respond with based on the client's feedback is going to be different. So no exactly. two notes should look the same. Even though you're doing EMDR right. four times in a row, the note will not look the same. Which, and this is probably another point that you and I will both hammer on, if you are a client or a clinician who is deeply trained in dialectical behavior therapy or EMDR or ACT, make sure you're actually saying the intervention, not just, you know, therapist utilized ACT, period. It's like, what did you do from ACT? So if you did dialectical behavior therapy, did you engage the client in a conversation about wise mind utilizing DBT? We want to know basically why you get the big bucks, so to speak, that justify um, that you're doing something, not just reading from a book or just holding up the book and saying, I did this. I completely agree. And that's where it's important to have a, a template that you use that perhaps lists the different modalities that you can check off and then have a place for a short Absolutely. narrative. Not a long explanation, a short narrative as to what you did using that modality. So let's quickly go over into this idea. I love what you just said and, and bringing up the narrative. 
what are the risks to us, be it insurance, liability, licensing, what are the risks when our documentation is quote unquote inadequate? So if we just have a note that says client was stable and present for session period, <laughs> which those notes exist, I've seen them, so is Beth. <laughs> so what what's the consequence of that across different pay sources? What does it mean for us? What are we risking when we do that? Well, if the notes are demanded by insurance, um, you'll fail the audit. That's just that's just a given. I mean, that basically happened to somebody who came to see me several years ago. He had a eighteen thousand dollar recoupment. Oh. It was a pretty oh. pretty awful situation. I mean, unfortunately, he had been audited twenty years earlier. He was using the exact same note. Only, and he had been told 20 years earlier, yeah, they're not great, but they're good enough. Well, they're, you know, four or five years ago, they weren't good enough anymore. And he completely failed his audit um, and learned and is now really, really good at what he does. That was a very expensive lesson. It was a very expensive lesson. I felt so bad for him. So for our listeners, a recoupment is when the insurance company has paid you and you've cashed that check and you have spent it on that lunch with your colleague and then the insurance company requests your notes and then they say, nope, there wasn't medical necessity, give me that money back. And you may or may not hire an attorney to try to reduce the recoupment. It is not fun. <laughs> there is no world where recoupment is fun. <laughs> there is no world, no. And there is no world where an audit is fun. Even, even when you know how to do documentation and you do it well, you don't want to be audited. It's never fun. When you and I have talked previously, you said something and I want to share it with our listeners because um, it, it struck me when you said it previously. There are more board complaints than insurance audits. So here we are talking about insurance audits, which, you know, if you're cash pay and you don't do super bills, you're not going to get audited by insurance. But that doesn't mean you don't have a very real risk of a board. And I think that's the part that we sometimes forget. Yes. And that's what we talked about just a bit before, that even though we don't want to believe that our clients would file a complaint against us, they do. I mean, just think of all the contentious divorces that therapists deal with. And the divorce doesn't go the way, or, or the, the, the couple's counseling doesn't go the way one member of the couple wants it to go. If it's a, a contentious couple, one of the members of the couple is very likely would file a complaint. You made her, you made him, you made, it's your fault we're getting a divorce. And you don't have notes that talked about what you did, that documented what they said, what you saw, and what happened, and your assessment of what happened. You have nothing to back yourself up with. And, you know, therapists by nature are so incredibly giving. And optimistic. And optimistic. Yes, we are an optimistic breed. Um, as challenged as that has become no. these past few years, we are an optimistic breed. A complaint can, can happen years later, even when the client is no longer in our care. And we are optimistic. We don't want to believe that our clients would, quote unquote, turn on mm. us. But our clients are our clients often because they have a hard time expressing their feelings and what they what they think. And if there is any kind of conflict that they experience with the therapist, they may not feel safe enough to talk about that conflict with you. 
or with the therapist, and then take it to the board. So as we're talking about this, you know, we're, (laughs) yes, sometimes we end up in a conversation about fear of the bad thing that could happen. I, again, there's so much you and I could talk about. (laughs) One of the things that was occurring to me as you were talking about this too, you referenced it earlier, and I want to follow up before we end today, was um, the code 90837. So 90837 is four sessions that are longer than 53 minutes. And there, it goes without saying that there is a whole lot of arbitrary stuff in our field that is biased and out of date. And Beth and I could get up on our soapbox about the limitations of diagnosis and these colonial origins and all of these problems with the system and insurance auditing and all of the things that are wrong. We live in this environment where we are expected to diagnose, where we're expected to have a treatment plan. And by diagnosing, we're then identifying some kind of quote unquote pathology that we are treating. And that's what's expected of us in the paradigm where we exist in the United States in healthcare as it stands right now. 90834, 90837, these different billing codes. I don't know who it was that said that a therapy session should be 50 minutes and occur weekly. I don't know who that person was. At this point to me, it seems completely arbitrary. So I'm curious if you agree, but it is the standard. I totally agree. (sighs) It's arbitrary. So accepting that there's this inherent flaw and many flaws in the system and this kind of arbitrary nature about diagnosing, for example, and that there isn't agreement across diagnosticians in medical or in behavioral health about what quote unquote diagnosis somebody has, accepting those limitations. If we're a person that is working with a client and we do 80 minute sessions because that's what works for that client and that's what works for me as a clinician, we might live in fear that we're going to trigger an audit because we are not doing the 50 minute session. How do we justify that in our notes? Well, I would be wary of doing an 80-minute session. That's what you said. Yeah, I would be wary of doing an 80-minute session if you are uh, billing insurance. Doing it once, twice, occasionally, you know, that's crisis work. Or that would be considered right, crisis work. Right, through their work. lens. They interpret that through their as lens. higher yes. acuity. That's right. You know, there are modalities where an 80-minute session is really helpful. And I would love to do 80-minute sessions if I didn't have another client waiting for me. But according to insurance companies and according to the medical standards we need to be documenting to now, 80 sessions on a regular basis is too long. And it implies a crisis And a client can't live in crisis all the time. This in and of itself could be its own conversation. And and it is that flag that we're afraid of, right? We're afraid of that audit from an insurance company or Medicare or Medi-Cal or whoever it is. For those of our listeners who are doing regularly 90-minute sessions, my question is, why are you doing it? And like, I am calling to mind a situation where I was working with a client who was neurodiverse. And that neurodivergence contributed to having difficulty with articulation and word finding and staying on topic. And so even though it wasn't crisis work, it was medically necessary, medically appropriate, quote unquote, through my clinical lens for our sessions to be 80 minutes long. Because 50 minutes, we would get like halfway through something and have to cut it because it took us so long in the meandering stream that was that person's uh, 
way of being in that moment and life situation and their neurodiverseness, if you will, if that's an acceptable phrase or word. But so in their neurodiversity, there it is. Um, but so that could be clinical justification. But then my notes need to, to clarify that and need to state due to the severity of this client's uh, ADHD symptoms and difficulty with word finding and staying on topic, it is medically appropriate. And that's where we're then talking about that clinical content that Beth mentioned, where it's like, here's my clinical fancy hat about why I'm doing a 90 minute, um, if it's not a crisis. But so if you are doing something, if you're meeting with a client twice a week, it's not that you can't, you have to be aware that it may increase your likelihood of an audit. And the insurance company may come knocking saying, hold on, when we look at your peers, you're using this code. And believe me, they're looking, <laughs> you're using this they code are. more frequently than your peers are. Why? And you need to be able to explain why, because again, it's this completely arbitrary thing, but it's a paradigm where we exist, that it's 50 minute sessions once a week. Right. And that was a fantastic example that you gave about why, about having an 80 minute session. Um, and I think there's quite a few folks who can benefit from that. If you're going to do something, if you're going to have a session that's longer than 53 minutes and you're going to use 90837, you want to justify that as part of your assessment in your note. So it can be a, a sentence as simple as 90837 is medically necessary to sort through complicated issues related to whatever that client is dealing with mm -hmm. and the client's clinical presentation. And somewhere else you will have checked off that the client was crying, right, or sobbing. Um, you might say something like 90837 is medically necessary to address complicated or severity of diagnosis mm -hmm. and clinical presentation. 90837 is medically necessary to create safe space so that client can process and then contain in order to carry on with the client's day. I want to also highlight something you said, Beth, which is the in order to. I am best friends with the in order to. I love the in order in order to. In a, in a past generation, we were really big on the as evidenced by. And there are some documentation pros that think that's great and some think that's awful. I personally... I'm not big on the AEB, on the AV evidence by. Uh, I am a huge fan of the in order to. <laughs> um, so it's if you find yourself uh, anticipating that you're going to face an audit or that you're doing something in a frequency or length or something that's even questionable. Like <laughs> One of my best examples of this, I had a teenager that really struggled with self-esteem. And one day the intervention was to walk down the hallway like Superman. That is a great intervention. And... It was in order to, in my case, draw the client's attention to body language, as, you know, that's being communicated to others based on um, self-esteem. But otherwise, like it would kind of look bonkers in my note where it's like therapist's client walked down the hallway like Superman because there was no explanation as to why I would have done that. So the in order to it explained it. But so I appreciate what and Beth there's just said. your assessment. Exactly. So there, there's the reasoning and the assessment of why I'm doing this and how it may be benefiting the client. But so I want to highlight that in order to part, because I think it can help us avoid painting ourselves into a corner. Yes. Yes. So part of your assessment can be why you did the intervention that you did. 
and you might not even know why you are doing it in the moment. But thinking back on it while you're writing your note is the self-supervision. And then you go, oh, that's why I did that. Thank you for that. You just totally brought it all full circle right as we're wrapping this up, that all of these pieces fit together. And I think it's both of our collective belief that um, how I say it is when we're wide awake at the wheel, when we're really reflective about what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're doing it, that hopefully will serve to make us more conscientious clinicians with better outcomes. Hopefully not to some extent that we become paralyzed by our own analysis, but the ability to use that to improve our skills. I find that when we are actually really engaged in that kind of thinking, that it's fun. Yeah. I know the therapists have a weird definition of fun, but it's fun. It's tinkering. <laughs> it is. I agree. It is. It's like, oh my God, that's how that works. Yeah. That's why that happened. Ah. Uh. So for our listeners who have enjoyed hearing from you, Beth, uh, please tell them how to learn more about your work. If there are any particular resources or books that you recommend, I mean, certainly there are a number of documentation guides out there that are fantastic. Um, what resources do you recommend? How do people get in touch with you and learn more about what you do? Well, I'd like to recommend my training on clinical documentation. It's called Misery or Mastery, Documenting Medical Necessity for Psychotherapists. Uh, I present all over the country, and I also have uh, an online webinar, and I have forms and templates that can all be seen on my website. You can learn all about all of it on my website, which is www.documentationwizard.com. Other books, people often ask me about treatment planning books, and this kind of kind of goes, goes back into the main body of our interview, do I recommend treatment planning books? And um, I would say, in general, I don't. And there's, there's pros and cons to treatment planning books. And if I could just take a moment and go over those pros and cons, and then how to deal with those pros and cons. So the pros of a treatment planning book is that they give you clinical language and that they help particularly young clinicians who don't really feel confident that they're doing therapy, know that they're doing therapy. And, uh, and they do provide some shorthand ways of saying things. However, they give you so many goals and so many objectives and so many interventions that it's really easy to just go, oh yeah, and I'll do that one and that one and that one and that one. And pretty soon you have a treatment plan that says nothing about your client. So it becomes very generic. You know, in a online, the the planning books online, you click on the diagnosis and, and up will pop right. a whole bunch of goals, right. And then you click on the goals and up pops a bunch of objectives. And you go, oh, well, I like those goals. So I'll just click on these objectives. And truly, it's not a treatment plan that it's not a treatment plan that speaks to the client. It's not a treatment plan that anyone else will read and get anything out of. And insurance companies don't like them because they're boilerplate. I'm nodding as you're talking about this, because I'm so curious what would happen if you put all of us in a room together. Like this is the documentation. Oh, some people nerds. love well, them. Some people love them. Well, but 
at least the people I've talked to echo what you're saying, which is it can be very helpful. However, it can become so boilerplate that you completely lose the identity and basically humanity of the client end of the treatment plan. And that's the limitation yes. with this checkbox way of thinking. I'm all for efficiency. Um, but I, I appreciate that, um, that preface that you just gave, because I think it needs to be part of the consideration. And I am absolutely sure, despite our contentious relationships with insurance companies, that they want us to be treating a person and not a diagnosis. They want to know about the human sitting across from us. They don't want to know about the diagnosis. And they want treatment to be directed towards that specific person. So I always say it's okay to, it's good to use clinical language when it's really what you're doing, but you don't have to use it. And in fact, if all you're using is the jargon of the modality you're trained in, you may not be communicating anything to anyone other than to people who are trained in your modality. And therefore, you can't prove medical yes, necessity. I, I call it psychobabble. When we get so Absolutely. good at our psychobabble, we lose um, simple communication because it gets lost in this very specific language by yes. a particular modality and it becomes unreadable to anybody outside. So what I recommend that people do, because I want to leave people a little hopeful around this, is go through your notes and see what interventions you, you, you use on a regular basis and why you use them. And just write them down. Have them be props. I'm a big fan of intervention props. Engaged client in, helped client to, and just, you know, Fill in the blank with lots of different, engage client in strategizing, engage client in identifying uh, and tolerating emotion and write them all down and look at them when you're writing your notes and going, oh yeah, that is what I did. And then use your words because it's your clinical voice. It's the, it's the therapist's clinical voice that needs to come out in the note. We could keep talking, Beth. This has been a great conversation for the last hour. And I hope well, I am hopeful, speaking of hope, that it's been helpful for our listeners to feel less fear and more confidence about their clinical documentation and also some normalization around the challenge of clinical documentation and the difficulty of working within the system sometimes as a provider. Um, one thing I want to piggyback on, another resource for you, make sure you know your state laws. Reach out to your professional associations if they have attorneys there go to state specific training so that you know, because yes. why, what might work in Texas doesn't work in California. Um, and so oftentimes folks like Beth and I, unless we're doing a state specific training, we're usually speaking on a national level. And it That's may right. be a baseline that is either excessive or inadequate for your particular state. And so making sure that you know those things about your actual state, because it changes. <laughs> so That's right. Thank you, Beth. I've really enjoyed having you. And again, for people who are interested in learning more about Beth's work, uh, she is the documentation wizard, and that is the way to find her um, on the interwebs. Thank you again for joining us, Beth. This was a great oh, thank uh, you. hour. It's delightful. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership 
where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.